Well, what's up, guys? A couple of new faces. Good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm the youth and college pastor here at PVN. And for the last three weeks, so this is the, the third and final week of what we have affectionately called um, the worst back-to-school series ever. Um, it's called Where is God When It's Dark? And it's about where is God in suffering? Like, where is God when things are not going right? Where is God when it really hits the fan? Um, where is God when the doctor's report is bad, when there isn't enough money? Where is he? Where is God? And so that's kind of what we're, we're walking through together and learning about. And it's been awesome. We actually went through the book of Job, uh, the first two chapters, which again, it's like, Welcome back to school. Let's go through Job together. Uh, and, but the Lord has really done some, some awesome things. And, and we've talked about kind of where is God in, in the heaviness? Where is God in the really deep, dark things? But I think it would be good for us if tonight we also took a look at um, where is God in the mundane things, in the day-to-day? Because chances are, I know some of you are really in it right now where it really has hit the fan, and you're kind of at the bottom, and you don't have a clue what you're supposed to do. Uh, and my hope is that the last two weeks have helped you, but I know that there are also some of you in here who are like, you know, I, that hasn't happened to me, but I'm really struggling with some, some day-to-day, right? I'm struggling with some of these common things. And, um, you know, we've studied the big things, but we need to remember a guy named Kevin DeYoung has a quote that says, busyness has killed more Christians than bullets, And I think he's exactly right. Uh, This idea that the little things, right? The little things in life, when they add up over time, they do just as much harm, if not more so. Think about that. They do just as much harm, if not more so, in your heart than the big stuff does. So we need to be just as confident of God's faithfulness in the big things as we are in the little things. Um, some of you, you might see some pens around. I say this every week. The pens are not magic. They're just, if you want to write something down, if you want to take notes, that's totally okay. Um, we're going to be flipping through the Bible a lot tonight, and my hope is that it will be up here on the screen. Um, but I think we should be okay. So, all right, last Friday, um, last Friday morning, one of the things that I had to do was I had to write a research paper for seminary, which is, for those of you who have written research papers before, its own form of suffering and torment. Um, so I'm working through that. But I also had to return a router, um, a cable and Wi-Fi router, for my in-laws. Okay? And so I went to this place. Um, it's kind of, it's over there across the street from Swift and Finch. It's this Comcast area. But little did I know. So, you know, I thought, you go there, you drop it off, no big deal. Um, last Friday was also the last day of the month which is when everybody gets paid, and it's when everybody goes to pay their cable bill. And so the line, outside, like I get to the Comcast place, and there's, I kid you not, in downtown Rome, there are cars around the corner to get into the Comcast place, which is where I needed to go. So that was an awesome way to start. And so as if like at the Comcast place isn't worse enough, the line of the Comcast place. So I'm waiting in line trying to get home to do this research paper, and I am like fuming, like I am burning up in my very soul, like in my brain and in my, I am so angry, like come on, like is this a joke, the the last day of the month and I'm supposed to return this, and this is Friday, so this is less than 24 hours after I preached on Job, and I'm complaining about waiting in line at the Comcast place, okay, so and I had to, like, I did, I had to kind of stop myself and, and remind myself, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Think about God's faithfulness to Job, right? 
If God was faithful to Job during his horrible terror, he's going to be faithful to you in the little things. Does that make sense? If he's faithful in these giant things, he's going to be faithful in these little things. We have enough new people where I can run this around for the third time, but we talked about that, and I know it's like an emotional pounding that you, some of you guys have taken, so just bear with me, but you remember the character, right? You know where I'm going? In, in Inside Out, right? This guy named Bing Bong, okay? Yeah, Zeb is just really hitting home. So there's this character in Inside Out named Bing Bong who's really going through it. He's really wrestling with it, and he's sitting on the side of the cliff, and Joy is trying to cheer him up, and it just won't work. And so Joy leaves, and then sadness and empathy sits next to Bing Bong, deep theological name, and, and kind of says, you know, I feel you on this. I understand what you're going through. I'm so sorry that you feel this way. And over time, through just sitting with this person, they're cheered up. And, and I think that's what we need in suffering in the big and the small things is someone to sit with us in this pain, right? So that's what we're looking at tonight. We have to remember that God is with us in the cancer. He is with us in the financial burdens that we bear. He is with us when we go to a college that we don't like or when we're going off to this awesome place and we can't wait and Rome's in the rear view and then like a, like a weird kind of black hole a little bit, you wind up coming back. Hey, it's me again. And you end up back and you don't know what to do. God's with us in these things, but he's also with us in flat tires. He's also with us in fender benders, in speeding tickets, in you think the test is on Thursday, but it's actually on Tuesday, and here you have it. God is, not that that's happening to any of you guys, but God is with us in these small, these things that it's like, it's funny here, ha, huh, it's funny here, but like, it's not funny when you're there, and like, and it grades on you, and over time, it builds we have to short-circuit that by remembering that God is with us in these small things as well. He's on his throne. We learned this last week in Job. God is on his throne, expertly, sovereignly, watching out for our big diseases and sicknesses, our lost jobs, our broken families. God is on his throne, seeing all of this, working in all of this. But he's also in every small detail as well. He's in the long lines as well. Flip in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 9. Or scroll or whatever you want to do. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Molly's got the tabs. Good for you. That's what's up. Um, no, you need it. That's good. Um, 1 Samuel chapter 9. And I know you're in 1 Samuel all the time. I'm sorry. Um, so 1 Samuel 9, 3 through 15. And here's what this is about, okay? Most people know King David, but not as many people know King Saul, who came before King David. Um, this is the story of how Saul became king. Now, understand, um, look at God's attention to detail in this, okay? Are we good to go, Lauren? Are we up here? Are you all set? You're ready to rock. So 1 Samuel chapter 9 Verses 3 through 15. I'm going to read them and then we'll break them down. 1 Samuel 9, 3 through 15. Now, the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So you have lost donkeys. So already the drama is at a fever pitch, right? So the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, who's going to be king, Take now one of your servants and go and search for the donkeys. Again, riveting. Verse 4. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, I always get this wrong, but they did not, could be a future name, right? But they did not find them. 
Then they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. And they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but did not find them. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servants who was with him, Come, let us go back or else my father will stop being worried about the donkeys and be concerned for us. He said, the servant said, Behold now, there's a man of God in this city close by, and the man has great honor, and whatever he says will come true. So he's a prophet. Let us go there, and perhaps he can tell us where to go. Verse 7, Then Saul said to his servant, But behold, if we go, what shall we give the man? For the bread is gone from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul and said, Behold, I have one-fourth of a shekel of silver, a small coin. I will give it to the man, and God, uh, the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Skip down to verse 10. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, let's go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Here we go. As they went up the slope to the city, they ran into a group of young women going out to draw water. And they said to them, Is the prophet here? They answered and said, He is. He is just ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has just come into the city today. For the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people won't eat until he blesses the food, because he must bless the sacrifice. Now, go up and you'll find him. 14. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, behold, Samuel the prophet was coming out towards them to go up to the high place. 15. Now, a day before Saul's coming, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel, saying, About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you will anoint him to be prince and king over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the Philistines. Okay, a lot going on. There's, there's a lot going on, a lot of names, a lot of weird stuff, a lot of boring stuff. Here's what follow this. Saul loses these donkeys, right? This is about the most common, boring, mundane thing that can happen. He loses these donkeys. I'm not a farmer, okay? Uh, I'll just be, I'll, no, I'll be open with that. Um, Olivia, you can help me with that. Shocked. Um, but I am aware that donkeys are not really known for their speed, nor for their uh, dexterity and ability to trek terrain and their intelligence. But somehow, now follow this, somehow these donkeys are able to stay lost long enough for Saul and his friend to wander close to this new town, close to Zuth. And then look at verse 6 again, 9 verse 6. He said to him, behold, the servant said, behold, there is a man of God in this city and the man is held of honor and he will tell us what's true. Now let us go and he can tell us where to go. So the servant, as they're wandering, looking for these donkeys, they start wandering towards this city where the servant just happens to remember that there's a prophet there. So let's go ask this prophet where our donkeys are. Okay. And as they're going into the city that they just happened to come across, look at verse 11. As they went up the slope of the city, they found young women going out to draw water. So as they're going into the city, these young women are coming out to draw water. And they tell Saul that this prophet just happened to arrive. Did you catch when? That very day. This guy that they're looking for wasn't even in town until just now. And then verse 14, the last part here. So they went up into the city, and as they came into the city, behold, Samuel was going out. 
So God uses lost donkeys, women going to get water, which they did every day, the suggestion of a friend, and Samuel going out of the city to go pray for a meal. These were the events, look at me, these were the events that, that God used to anoint the next king of Israel. Who are we to think that God doesn't use our flat tires and our long lines for His divine purposes? It's not meaningless. You're here because you, don't, you didn't expect to be here. It's not meaningless. You're not in college because you're not, you're not at the college that you're at. You're not home now because your parents filled out the paperwork and you had enough money to get through financial aid. That's not the root reason you're there. God is in all the little things just as much as He is the giant events of your life. Um, you know this verse. In Matthew 10, 29, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. A sparrow was the cheapest, most common bird in the ancient Near East. They were everywhere. Um, One commentator says if you were to buy two of these, they give you a third one for free because there's just so many of them. Think about pennies, right? When was the last time you actually thought about these, right? Uh, There are people who like throw away pennies. Like they don't, They don't do anything. Like, they don't matter. Think about this idea that God knows where every single penny in the world is. He knows where every single penny in the world is. Matthew 10, 30-31. Indeed, the very hairs on your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. God is saying, I know where every penny in the world is. And you're worth way more to me than a penny. Does that make sense? I told this story last semester, I think. Um, My wife has long blonde hair. And I know that, one, because I can see her, but two, because it's everywhere in our house. Because it just comes out. Like, it just does. There's threads everywhere. Um, One of Kristen's, like, back when we first started dating, one of Kristen's strands of hair was in the fold of my laptop. Kristen doesn't even use my laptop. And there was a strand, and she was like, I didn't know it was there. Like, what do you want me to do? But here's the thing. God knows that. God knows where that strand of hair is. He knows every hair on our heads. He's going to be there with us in the small things. He's going to be with us in the mundane things. Listen to this story from a guy named John Piper. Um, in 1982. All right, listen to this story. I carry a MasterCard. He's so old. I carry a MasterCard for identification and rare unforeseen expenses. Noel, his wife, Noel and I took the MasterCard to California where we lost it while on vacation. So in the middle of vacation, they lose the credit card, okay? I had no idea where it was. It could have been in the seal show at SeaWorld. It could have been in the fruit shops in Tijuana. It could have been in who knows how many restaurant seats or on the beach somewhere in the sand. I had no idea where our only credit card was. But the wonderful thing is that I felt no worry. Now, mind you, that is not natural for me. I am by nature a pessimist, which is so good. And under ordinary circumstances, I would have concluded that someone had already charged the limit on my card. I would usually get mad at myself or my family and take it out on everybody. 
I would look hard for some divine purpose in all the trouble, and I would have had an awful time on vacation. But this time it was different. My credit card was lost, yet I felt no worry at all. I didn't get angry with anyone. I never felt any frustration. I was happy the whole way through. The whole time it was lost, I went about my business as usual, trusted God, and loved my family. And when I got back from vacation, there it was in an envelope. My friend in California had mailed it back to me because I had dropped it in his car when we visited him. Do you know, now, here it is. Do you know what the secret to my happiness was? I never even knew that I had lost the card until I found it back home in the envelope. It had slipped out of my wallet and I hadn't even noticed. I stood there at back at home holding the card in my hand and smiling. Just think of how angry I would have been if I had known that I lost it. Think of how depressed and worried and angry and irritable I would have been. And the whole time, the card was safely on its way back to my home. Now, what is the lesson in this? For me, it's this. As soon as we discover we have a problem, God has already been working on it, and the solution is on its way. Do you follow that? We all have problems in our lives. Huge problems, tiny problems, mundane problems, desperate problems. But by the time you discover the problem, right? By the time you discover the problem, by the time you finally, wait a second, this, this could be bad. By the time you get your head around that, God is light years ahead of you. And I mean that in a good way. He's already been working. Can you think about this? Let this sink. God has already been working on how to solve your problem before you even realize you have one. Do you follow that? He's working on the problem, dealing with the problem, loving you the entire time before you even realize the problem exists. Christians of all people. Now, some of you may not be Christian. Some of you are figuring it out. And so let me just give you a, a peek into Christianity. And some of you I know are believers, so understand this. Christians of all people, of all people, Christians should be the ones who can keep things in the proper perspective. Because we're the only ones who have actually been given the proper perspective. That God is huge compared to all the problems we have. Not that your problems are small, but that God is so much bigger. And as Christians, we know this. We have the correct perspective. A woman asked a pastor one time, does God care about the small things? And the pastor responded, ma'am, I don't know anything that isn't small to God. Everything is small to God. Everything is handleable to God. We should be the last ones to become impatient. We should be the last ones to become frustrated. Because, not because you're trying to bury it. Christians are not the only ones who are good at burying it. We will have family fun. I will enjoy this. That's not what Christians do. We have to take that frustration. Take that anger. You have it. You've got to do something with it. Take it to the God who is bigger than your problem. Your perspective, if, you, if you're a note taker, if you're this type A, understand this. Your perspective of God 
will directly impact your attitude. Your perspective of God will directly impact your attitude. If your problem starts to take over your heart, right? Your heart only has so much space. If your problem, if you focus on that problem and it swells and it takes over your heart, God has less and less room to work. And where God is less and less present, the fruits of the Spirit are less and less prevalent. That's when you become irritable. That's when it really gets to you. Follow me. And we said this last week. Anything from cancer to criticism. It's not your problem that's really affecting you. Look at me, college. Your singleness is not what's really getting to you. Your relationship that you thought was going to fix it all and it's not fixing it all and you're bothered, that's not what's really getting to you. The sickness in your family, the dysfunction in your family, that's not what's really getting to you. It's your view of God that's the problem. If you can begin to widen, if you can open that window to see God more clearly, let the sun shine into your heart more clearly, things begin to change. Your problem doesn't change, but the size of God does. You see that? Flip in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4. So Jonah, a.k.a. the worst missionary ever, goes to Nineveh. Um, He gives this little spiel. He doesn't even talk about the Lord, really. And Nineveh repents. Jonah does not want Nineveh to repent, right? This is a Sunday school classic. This is on the gold record. He doesn't want Nineveh to repent. They do anyway. The Lord moves. They repent. Jonah is not pleased, right? Look at Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. This is how angry Jonah is. So just follow what an idiot this guy is, okay? Jonah chapter 4, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, since they have repented, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Verse 4, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry about this? So Nineveh repents. The city city of 120,000 has turned to God, and Jonah is so mad about it, he wants to die. He asks God to kill him, right? Now, look at verse 6, 6 through 9. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew over Jonah to be a shade over his head and to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better for me than life. It's the exact same thing that he just said earlier. Verse 9, Then God said to Jonah, Do you have reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. So, Jonah is upset about 120,000 people turning to God. God then grows this plant for Jonah. And it says Jonah was extremely, my version says he was extremely happy. This is the only time Jonah is happy in the entire book. And it's over something from Home Depot, right? Then this thing dies, then this plant dies, so he's so mad again he wants to die. 
Like, can you picture Jonah? Like, this is how I picture it. Like, he's holding the plant and it's like a, like, a, like a dead, like a lover who is tied. And he's like, looks at God with the plant and he's like, murderer! Like, he yells, you know what I mean? Like, this is how you picture. But we do this all the time. When things go wrong in our lives, when the little things go wrong in our lives, we look at God and we think, how crazy are you, God? You're bipolar. How could you do this to me? Look at verse 10 and 11. 10 and 11. And when I find it, there we go. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on this plant, for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right and their left hand, as well as many animals? So God says, Jonah, you hate the people of Nineveh so much that you wanted to die And then you rejoiced over this plant. You became happy because I gave you a plant. And now you want to die again. Jonah, I'm not the one who's bipolar. You are. And this is so true with us. We're so furious and upset with God over little things that happen in our lives. And then He fixes the little things and we think, now I know that you love me. Because you got me out of this small situation. How dare we? God is saying to Jonah, Jonah, the salvation of all these people, the big picture of what I'm doing, that's what's important. And you've missed it. God is saying, I sent my son to die on the cross for your sin, and you think I hate you, because you got a flat tire. You think I hate you because you have a job that's boring. You think I hate you because you don't make as much money as you'd like. We have to have the proper perspective of who God is and what God is doing. Take your anger at the little things and see the God who is bigger. And not just the little things, though. Take every disease, every financial debt, every family dysfunction, and understand that God is bigger than these things. And He is on His throne watching as they get to you, stopping them before they get to you, working on them to where then when they get to you, they're going to do His purpose. We talked about this last week. Knives are meant to kill and destroy or they can be used to perform surgery. The pain, the suffering, the little things, the little knives. Have you ever heard the phrase death by a thousand cuts? It's these little things that get into our lives. God takes these little things too. He stops them and interviews them too and whittles them down until now. The knife will still cut. You'll still get the flat tire. You'll still have to drop the class. But He uses them to where now they do good and perform surgery in your life when they cut instead of killing you. Last one. 
Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. This is what Paul says. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Paul says, He, this is God, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Here's what Paul's saying. The biggest obstacle in your life that prevents God from getting to you was giving up His own Son. The biggest thing, the biggest sacrifice that God has ever had to do to get to you is to give up His own Son for you. And He did it. And if He can get over, listen to me, cancer, listen to me, Jobless, single, frustrated, confused. You don't know, what you're, don't know what your future is supposed to be. Think you've spent three years in college going after the wrong thing and now you don't know what to do. You're in panic mode. You had this plan and then life just kind of went, watch this, and messed the whole, and flipped the whole thing over. Listen, if God can get over giving up His Son to your salvation... Nothing will stop him from rescuing. He is for you always, in all circumstances, if you are in Christ. The line at the DMV from hell, he is for you. The disease in your family that's ripping it to shreds, he is for you. He is working in your life. The joblessness, the confusion, the, 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 there's this space, there's this limbo that we were talking, Titus and I were talking about earlier where, and you'll see, you graduate college and you're not a student anymore, but you're not an adult yet. And you're in this weird limbo. And there's no, you don't know what you're supposed to do. There's this, there's this frustration. He is for you in that. He is with you in that. That he is with you in every circumstance, every long line, every trip to the doctor's office, every strife in your family, every night that you ache because you're single still, every day that you realize you don't have the money. Paul is saying, Listen, listen to me, read the verse again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will He not also then graciously give us all things? Paul is saying, He gave His Son for me. That's how I know He loves me. I have a disease? Fine. I don't need health to know that He loves me. I have the cross. I'm in debt? Fine. I don't need money to know that He loves me. I have the cross. I had this, and, and now that's the big, but now I had the day off planned. I was ready to rock and roll, and I had all these things come up. Fine. I don't need comfort to know that He loves me. I have the cross. It's this contentment that you search for. It's not that you want, that you just want the disease to be gone. 
It's the warmth that you want from the disease being gone. It's the warmth of the day off with nothing to do. It's the warmth of knowing you have enough money. You need this. You see this? I need this. And God, through suffering, through the suffering that's meant to cut you down, in your suffering, follow this, your suffering is not God trying to kill you. It's the Lion of Judah striking the cage that you've locked yourself in. He's trying to get you out of this. If I have health, I'll be okay. If I have a growing college ministry, I'll be okay. If I can just get married, I'll be okay. If I can have enough money, I'll be okay. And I'm not coming out until I get these things. You lock yourself in there. So through singleness, through debt, through sickness, through suffering, the Lord is prying your arms open, showing you, you don't need health, you need me. You don't need money, you need me. You don't need a relationship, you need me. He is prying your arms open. Wait till you get married and you'll see you don't need a relationship. You need Him. Because if you worship your spouse, you will do her harm. If you, you will do Him harm. Because you're going to crush Him under that weight. You're going to crush her under that weight. And when things go wrong in your marriage, it's, it's lockdown. But if you have something deeper than your marriage, deeper than your health, you can get knocked to your knees and not collapse under the weight. And again, I'm not at all saying that, okay, whatever, cancer, get over it. I'm not saying that. I'm saying look at the size of the God who made you and saved you and redeemed you. Give this to Him. All the suffering. The Gospel is the key to your suffering. Jesus went through the worst suffering ever and then He rose from the dead. And now, you live with Him. And all suffering in ways that I cannot even begin to explain. I know there are people in here that it's hit the fan for. And I know there are people who, they have a relatively good life, but there's this thorn in your side that's just not getting any better. I understand that. In Christ, all suffering that you go through in ways that I cannot begin to explain is working for you. He is drawing you in. Bringing you closer to Him. I've told this story before, but I have a friend named uh, Dennis who got cancer several years ago. Went through chemo, got through it, and he tells me, he says, Ryan, I'm not saying I want cancer again, but I miss how close I was to Jesus in my chemo. Do you hear that? I miss how close I was to Him in my chemo. In my joblessness, in my singleness. C.S. Lewis says, God is shouting to you in suffering. You don't need this, you need me. I am all that you need. Nothing else can save you. I am all that you need. Little transparent here. Um, this college ministry is awesome, and we're doing big things, and the youth ministry that I have is great. Um, 
But every pastor wants their church to grow in numbers. And if they say they don't, don't go to their church because they're lying, okay? Um, I just want the word to be preached. Yeah, you do, but you want the word to be preached to a lot of people. That's the point. Um, And we're growing, but we're growing at God's pace. And there are days where I kind of, "What what am I supposed to do? And I bang my head against the wall. And then I call Ricky and I bang my head against Ricky's head. And I'm like, what are we supposed to do? And I was literally, I was outside a few weeks ago uh, setting up for a game in the youth ministry and out of nowhere, the, the Holy Spirit just went, and he said, having a big ministry will never save you. Only I can do that. And it completely flipped everything on my head. It flipped the whole thing on its head for me. I know some of you are clawing to find somebody. I know some of you are clawing for this family dysfunction to end. For mom and dad or for granddad or to just get it together. And I know some of you are clawing for this sickness to end. I mean, you've you're, you got to get this right. And I understand that. I do. you got to hear me. Your sickness can end and you will still go to hell. You can have the greatest marriage ever. You can write books about it and still go to hell. He removes things from us. He puts us through things because He's trying to perform surgery. He's trying to cut out that which will kill us. And please understand that sometimes God likes to say yes. Please don't think that He's just going to keep you buried. You're never going to get a mate because I'm God and I'm trying to make you holy. Maybe. But man, maybe He's getting that person ready for you. And when, you, when that happens, everything that you'll have learned through this incredible PVN college ministry? Maybe you're begging for healing to come and he's saying, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. But you've got to let me do it. Maybe. All these things he's trying to show. Think about it like this. The surgeon cannot do surgery until the heart is exposed. Maybe in suffering, that's what he's doing. He's exposing your heart. I don't like this. There's your heart exposed. Now we can get to work. Blessed be His name. Blessed be His name. Go to Job 1 and 2 and work this into your soul. Blessed be your name. I don't like this. This is hard. But you're working and I love you. Blessed be your name. Let's pray.